our guest today is our dear old friend, uh, Kim Oosterlink. And we've asked him to come to talk to us about economic and financial history, his uh, specialties. But he also has a subspecialty. Actually, he has multiple subspecialties, two of which are particularly relevant to our conversation today. One is his interest in historical instances of odious debt, shall we say. And we'll get Kim to explain those a little better, but uh, instances where governments have behaved very badly in the incurrence of the debts. And then there is significant debate and drama over whether or not subsequent governments will pay those back. And given that we're talking about history, uh, Kim's work has implicated imperialism and the colonies and instances of some really heinous behavior. But, but the other part of his research that I was not familiar with for many years, despite having been a big fan of his sovereign debt research, is his work on art and art history. And it is also, it turns out, quite relevant to some of the topics we want to talk about today, uh, particularly attempt, attempts to get compensation for art that was stolen a long, long time ago. So with that introduction, let me uh, set out the first question that uh, derives from Kim's large body of work on the czarist debts. And as we often teach the czarist debts in our uh, sovereign debt class, we, we do so in a very simplified way, which is sort of the Czar is overthrown by a popular uh, movement. The Czar did all sorts of bad things and the popular uh, movement does not want to pay the debts of the Czar back and therefore these debts never get paid. It's a classic example of odious debts. But I think Kim will tell us that the history and the choice of repudiation and investor, be, investor perceptions as to whether or not there would be repeat repudiation is much more complicated. So Kim, if, if you don't mind starting with the czarist debts, we'd be most grateful if you could give us sort of your nuanced historical sense of how these odious debts play out. Thanks, and thanks for having me uh, in your podcast. It's, uh, it's superb. Um, so the Tsarist debt, I actually happened to work on this topic by accident. I was, uh, I was looking for prices of French bonds during World War I. I wanted to see how the French government was doing in terms of public debt. And then I looked at the price of these Russian bonds just because it's a very famous episode in France and in Belgium. I mean, these bonds were everywhere. And so I was looking at the price, knowing when the bonds had been repudiated, and, and I was you know, just kind of thinking, oh, well, this should go very fast to zero. And I was looking at the prices, collecting the prices, and the bond prices remained high. When I say high, it's 50% of par, which is very high for a bond that's been repudiated. And so I started wondering why on earth did these French bondholders believe 
they would get anything back from these bonds. And so it started my story with the Tsarist debt. So in short, I mean, France was the main market for, main foreign market for Russian debt because France used its bond markets as a way to please its ally or to get allies. And Russia in the geopolitical environment at the time was extremely important for France. They were expecting problems with Germany and having an ally on the Eastern Front would be very useful. So they actually encouraged Russia to borrow on the Paris Stock Exchange. This really helped support the Tsarist regime. The Tsarist regime was anything but nice. It's a very autocratic regime. There's no democracy, nothing. And for a long time, thanks to the French report, they managed to, um, to basically go on. Then the First World War starts. You have a major problem in Russia. There is a revolution. The Bolshevik overthrow the, star, the Tsar. And that's where my story actually began. That's where I was expecting these bond prices to go to zero, and they just didn't. And so this forced me to actually look at archives and try to understand why were people hoping. I mean, these bondholders were not stupid. Of course, we know ex post that they didn't get anything back for years, but at the time they had actually good reasons to hope. And some of them believed that, well, you know, the Russian empire having disappeared, some of these successor countries would take over part of the debt. And actually several countries suggested they were in fact indeed responsible and willing to pay part of the debt. Then they were also hoping that at some point, maybe this Bolshevik regime would be overthrown. It was not irrational, especially since the French had sent troops to overthrow the Bolsheviks, the Brits had done that, the Japanese were involved. So, you know, you could expect these uh, to just, well, get ousted. And then they were also hoping somehow that at some point, maybe you would have a change of position from these Bolsheviks. And this was also quite rational. At the time, you didn't have a major repudiation like that. This would be, in my eyes, it's really a turning point in this story about repudiation. It's one of these seldom repudiation where actually the repudiating government refused to pay for a very, very, very long time. Usually you get a settlement, or if not, it's on smaller amounts. Here we're talking about huge amounts. Then they were also hoping that the French government might actually help them somehow. And just to explain why they would have hoped so, well, in fact, France had really, really, I mean, pushed to get these bonds in uh, French hands. They actually made lots of publicity for these bonds. They were also actually treating these bonds as very safe assets. So they were considered as safe as French bonds. So for example, the funds that were in charge of uh, orphans money, they were allowed only to invest in a few securities The Tsarist bonds were in there. And so they were hoping that France being involved so much would pay something. But of course, at the end of the day, none of this materialized. And so we observe a very high price that ex post seems completely irrational, but at the time was very rational. The other so thing that I, yeah, sorry. Oh, no, no, go, go ahead. I, I wanted to follow up on one thing you said, but go ahead, go ahead first. If, if you don't stop me, I'll just talk and talk. So that's right. I'll, I'll give you another 30 seconds. <laughs> okay, so I, the other thing that I found extremely interesting when you think about prices is looking at kind of information people at the time had. And there's a very nice feature about these bonds that they're trading during the First World War for most of the part. 
And at some point, the head, the person in charge of Paris Stock Exchange was very anxious that because of the war, you'd have troubles. And so he sent spies in several spots of his own city, including the stock exchange. And so we have this report from his own agent that and he's describing what people say. And I think over one year and a half, they report Lenin being shot three times. They report things that are completely preposterous. Lenin has been seen in Budapest with all the money. I mean, and so you realize that people were trading on, I mean, wrong information on dreams. And so that I found is extremely interesting. Can we, can we loop back to talk about the relationship between the French government and French investors? So that in a lot of the instances that we focus on in our class, the sort of political power or lack of political power of the investor base is kind of an important theme. And, and as I understand it here, there's a really significant part of French national wealth tied up in, in uh, Russian debt. Um, often large bond issuances in Paris sort of with by the, the czarist regime um, with the more than encouragement, but the, some some pressure by the French government to get these issuances to happen. What did ultimately happen between French investors and the French government? Was there a significant pressure to, to step in and, and bail, bail out investors that the government resisted? Was the investor base too diffuse? Can you tell us a bit more about, about that? Of course. So it's, it's um, the first thing we need to know when we think about the French or the Republic is that it's known to be highly corrupt. And so you have to understand that these bonds that were traded in Paris before being accepted on the Paris Stock Exchange needed the approval of the Minister of Finance, but also the Minister of Foreign Affairs. And what we know now is that the Russian Tsarist government bribed, actually, the head of the Paris Stock Exchange, bribed the French finance minister to actually make sure that they would really promote these bonds. So it, it, the, the bonds were useful for the French government for its political motives. They wanted the Russians to be allies. But there was also, I mean, foul play going on. So there's also bad things going on behind the scenes. Then and wasn't... Wasn't the Russian government also bribing a bunch of French newspapers to oh. talk up the debt and, and what a good investment it was? Massively. And, and so we know this because once the Bolsheviks took over, what they did is they publicized all the journals, all the bribes, all the amounts, all the letters exchanged. And it's really blackmailing. So they're actually sending letters to journalists and saying, well, we didn't like what you said about us last time. You won't get your check this time. You better behave next time. And so it's really, I mean, it's really bribing on a very large scale. On top of that, French banks were also heavily involved in Russia and they had nice deals. So they were actually taking, I mean, being in charge of a treasury of their, the Russian government. So they were also making quite a lot of money on this. And so at the end, what you see is that these bonds, they're everywhere in France. I mean, France is a very rural country at the time and you would find bonds in remote villages, really places where nowadays you, you would have a hard time finding people there. It's a deserted place almost. It was everywhere. When, when, the, um, when, when the French uh, population actually lobbied the government to get repaid, the fact that so many people held these bonds, well, and the amounts involved actually shaped the way the French government 
responded to these demands. So the, France has had a bizarre relationship with its bondholders. There is a precedent with Mexico where this, there's a bond that was actually pushed by Napoleon III, so they felt a bit responsible. So they were actually, when, when this bond was defaulted upon, they actually helped and gave something. Can I just interrupt it? So this, the actions and the strategies of the French government are particularly interesting, not just as a matter of history, but because Mark and I have been spending a lot of time this semester and thinking about Haitian debt and uh, France sending the gunboats uh, to Haiti to ensure that the Haitians agree to an in indemnity. So in, in that context, did France agree to guarantee pay investors uh, to substitute for the Russian payments given the French government's bad behavior? Did they threaten? So they did several things. Yeah. The, the first thing they did is they sent troops in, uh, in Russia to overthrow the Bolshevik regime. The problem is that these troops are not motivated. I mean, they, they just gone out of World War I and we have letters from soldiers saying, I'm not going to die. I guess they didn't bonds. pay the troops with bonds. Well, no, it's, it's more as these, these people, I mean, the soldiers, they knew they were going to fight to get people, people's money back and they were not highly motivated. And if, <laughs> if you've survived World War I in the trenches of World War I and you're being sent less than a year after to southern Russia to get, I mean, to get to fight to, to have another regime that will just repay bond, bonds, I mean, it's not really a nice thing to do. Now, what the French did is during the war, so the, the, um, the revolution happens, but at that point, the Russian is still technically an ally of France against the fight to Germany, against, against Germany and Austria-Hungary. So what happens is France decides at first that they should do something to support their ally. So what they do, they keep on paying the coupons during the war saying, well, it's our ally, we should pay the coupons. They'd done it during the war because it was hard to ship, to ship money from Russia to France because of the war. But then at some point, there is a separate peace treaty with, uh, between Russia and Germany. And so France has no real reason to repay these bonds anymore. Still, what they do accept is they accept that uh, French bondholders exchange coupons of Russian bonds as a form of payment to buy French bonds. But it's a tiny, a tiny amount, and it's the only thing they would do. However, market participants believe that much more was coming. And we know it because of two, uh, two elements. The first one is the debates in the French parliament, where it's a recurring theme, mostly from, from part of the, um, of the government and also from, from the richest part of the government, people who own this bond to say we should do something and we should have the bank, maybe the banks should pay something to the bondholders. The second thing we know, and that's very, uh, very funny. It's a, it's a paper I did with uh, Oscar Bernal and Ariane Safars. We have these bonds, these Russian bonds, some of them are cross-listed. So they're listed both in Paris and in London. And usually when you have cross-listed bonds, their price are the same just because of arbitrage. If there's a price higher in one place than in the other, you buy cheap, you sell it high, that's easy. But because of the war, you could not actually trade bonds from Paris to London, even though they were allies. And what we see is that these prices are very similar for almost all the war, 
But once the repudiation occurs, the price in Paris are sub substantially higher than in London. And these bonds, they are facing all the same risk. I mean, say macroeconomic risks, the same select, I mean, we don't think about the Bolshevik doing a selective default. They're really facing all the same risk. The only difference is that France had a small history of bailing out its bondholders, whereas British bondholders were not expecting that. And so that's a way to actually show that bondholders were expecting something from the French government. But what, what role, if any, did the odiousness of the czar play in this? Were there discussions in the French parliament that, look, investors lent to the czar, the czar was a bad guy, uh, you know, the people finally overthrew the czar, so therefore that's a risk that they took. And were, I mean, because there must have been a significant progressive leftist movement in France at the time that I assume took, oh, yeah. uh, the, the, supported the, uh, the Bolshevik position and did not want uh, those uh, debts to be repaid. Is, yes. is that roughly correct? It is correct. I mean, it, and it, it will be, and this is true for most, uh, I mean, turn of the century, um, 19th century, you would have in many places in Belgium too, you'd have the left would systematically oppose lending for colonial purposes or for, or for uh, autocratic regimes. So this is exa exactly what you said. They were opposing it, but I think, in my view, the moment where you see this opposition most strikingly is after the repudiation, where they're actually really vocal and say we shouldn't repay these uh, these uh, these bonds, but also when there's a 1906 uh, loan issued by Russia, which is some have called it the the the, the loan that saved the Tsarist regime. So the the, um, the Tsarist regime enters in war with with uh, Japan. They lose the war; it's a disaster. They, at the same time, there's a first Russian revolution. It's also a disaster and they're completely in need of money. And they really have to find money fast. They have to make political concessions, but the Tsar doesn't really want to make these. They know that they face lots of uh, inside opposition. And so what they do, they turn to their French ally and say, well, we would like to float a large loan in Paris. Could you do something for us? And here it becomes extremely interesting because the French government, and that's a habit of, of the French government at the time, is actually trading favors against money. So they, they want the help of the Russian government in affairs in Morocco. So they want the support of Russia in Morocco against Germany. And at the time, it's, it's a heated debate about the fate of Morocco. And at the same time, they, you have a huge opposition in France. It's hard to, um, to state how strong this opposition to this loan was. It's, um, it's a loan that's described as illegal for the, even by the French ministers at the time because it's rushed before the Russian parliament can convene and it's done on purpose. The Russian government, I mean, the Tsarist regime decides to rush the loan before the Duma can, so the parliament can say anything about it. At the same time, people in France realize that this loan is actually, well, going to help crush further the leftist movements in Russia. And so you have a huge opposition in France. I mean, it's, it's uh, the French Socialist Party, of course, but also Maxim Gorky. Everywhere people are complaining about this loan. Jean Jaurès, a very famous uh, figure of the French left are really, really against this loan. Anatole France, very famous people are fighting against this loan. 
in Russia itself, I would say a large part of the political parties are against this loan and threaten to repudiate the loan if they ever come to power. And of course, you would expect this from the Bolsheviks, makes sense. But even if you go to what we would call in Europe a center, center right, they would still oppose this loan. So it's a very broad coalition against the loan in Russia. Can we, um, I, I hate to, to take us in a, in a different direction, but I'm going to try to do it a little bit just because I wanted, before we take a, a quick break, I wanted to see if we could get you to talk about one other example. So one of the, the things that's so fascinating to me about the about um, these episodes and about your research is that we consistently see prices taking into account information about the odiousness of the debt and sort of reflecting shifting investor perceptions about how that's going to uh, affect the likelihood of repayment. So I was hoping we could get you to talk a little bit about the collaborationist Vichy French government and how the market reacted to those bonds as the sort of course of the war shifted and as the outcome became clear. Of course. So what happens in, in France in World War II, you have the country, well, France is defeated very fast in the first phase of the war. So in a couple of months, France is invaded. They sign an armistice and basically France is partitioned. You have one part of the country that's directly under German control. The other is actually run from a city called Vichy. It's a, it's a spa town in, in, uh, in, in France where the collaborationist government is actually uh, running the country. And this government issues bonds. And what I found interesting is to see to which extent markets in Paris were treating these bonds in a similar way as bonds that had been issued before the war. And so it turns out that if you look at the bond prices, as the war goes on, there's a huge, I mean, a larger and larger discount for bonds issued during the war versus bonds issued before the war. So it means that people gradually started to realize that maybe this bond I bought under the occupation, if France is ever liberated, if it becomes an independent country again, well, maybe the new government will be unwilling to repay it. And so as the war progresses, this premium goes wider and wider and wider and it really becomes very substantial. It's interesting because it grows and grows and grows. And at first I was expecting it to, to grow. And I, I was no, I, I knew that France had not repudiated its, its Vichy debt, but you know, I didn't know when to expect the price to converge again. I was expecting some gradual realization that, you know, people would gradually realize that, you know, well, they're not going to repudiate that debt, it's okay, it's gonna have the same value again. But it turns out it was a much more abrupt change and it came at a moment that I found a bit bizarre. So it's in, in, in July 44, just after D-Day, I mean, a couple of weeks afterwards, and I was wondering why on earth? I mean, I mean, France is now about to be liberated. Why did people change the view they had on the likelihood of repudiation. And then I started to read more about the, um, well, the debates at the time. And so for French holders of these bonds, basically they realized that Germany was going to lose the war. That was for sure. And you could say there were probably three outcomes that you could expect. The first one 
would have been an occupation by the U.S. Army. So actually, the 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 the, the, the Allies were treating France as an enemy at this point. They had already printed currency as if it as if they were going to treat it as an enemy country. Of course, if this kind of government were to take France over, the likelihood that these debt would be repaid would be close to zero. The other option would have been, another option would have been a communist takeover. I mean, the communists were extremely active in the resistance. They could have taken power. In this case, these debts and probably all debts would have been repudiated. And in July 44, what happens is that uh, General de Gaulle actually prevents the uh, treatment of France as an enemy. So he stops the use of this occupation currency and everything. And so as bizarre as it may seem, the goal is actually the best outcome for these, the holders of these bonds. Of course, you could say, well, the goal is fighting against Vichy, he's fighting against Pétain. Why on earth would he want to repay these bonds? And actually for very simple reasons. If you look at the bank balance sheet at the time, because of financial repression, 80% of their assets were invested in these bonds. And so the goal knew that if he repudiated these bonds, he would actually kill his whole banking system. And so as surprising as it may seem, well, the goal was actually a good outcome for the holders of the Vichy bonds. In another paper I did, that's a completely obscure paper, I, I did actually the same for Belgium and you have the same trajectory. You have also the same dramatic increase in the difference up till October 44, but then I can't follow it because the, the stock market is closed uh, because of the war. But it's really the same trajectory. And, and it, it, it's actually, try, I mean, it's a way to, to, to see how people felt about all this. In Belgium at the time, even banknotes, people were looking at the signature on the banknotes and banknotes that had been signed by the central banker before the war was 10% more valuable than the banknote that had been issued during the war. I mean, there was the, the central bank, the, the, the head of the central bank died and so there was a change. So you could easily see when it had been issued. And, and I find this extremely interesting because when I asked my students, well, who signed the, the, the banknotes you have in your, in your pocket? None of them know. Nobody looks at this. Can, can I ask you a question? Uh, this is this is beyond uh, fascinating. I did not know about the Belgian study that you did. I'm familiar with your uh, Vichy France um, well, bonds. It's in a Belgian uh, journal in French, so it's quite normal. You don't know about it. Well, th this is. I mean, but I'm. I'll ask you one quick question, even though we're supposed to go to the break. So, uh, but I can't can't help but ask this. Do you have a sense? Given that you know, uh, I know you've looked at the the debates and in, in the archives. Give a sense of whether there was discussion of legally having having the legal entitlement to repudiate these debts, either in Belgium or in France. After all, uh, the sort of Nazi-controlled regimes were among the worst in history and so that their morality was definitely on their side and or whether the question is or whether the discount that the market was applying was because people just didn't like the signature like i just don't want to have a sig a, 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 a banknote that has donald j trump's uh, photograph on it regardless of what it's worth or is it because i think that biden will not pay the banknotes that have donald j trump's photo on that. It's extremely hard to know what people are thinking. So looking at the parliamentary debates, 
The problem is in France, you still have Vichy France, so they're not going to debate publicly about about their own debt. So, so there, there, I, I mean, there's nothing there. In Belgium, it's a lot more complicated because the government is in exile, so the legitimate government is in exile, and in Belgium, you have a government that's may, mainly, I mean, it's, it's mostly high high civil servants running the country. In none of the cases did I find any element le leading to a legal motivation regarding repudiation. So my view is a bit more, it's a bit in the, in the sense what you said. I think many people were at first indifferent. As the war went on, they realized that people could actually blame them for having these, um, these, uh, these, these bad bonds or these bad banknotes. I don't think they, I mean, I'm, I'm not, uh, well, maybe I'm not, I don't believe enough in the humankind, but I don't think m most of the French people actually change from being supportive of Vichy to becoming high, I mean, resistance. I think most of the population just was there and just, you know, things happened. But I think many of them actually started to fear that they could be questioned at the liberation about these bonds. So why did you have these bonds? What, what do you, what, why did you support this government? So. I think it's it has to do more with the um, the fear of being publicly criticized or being you know actually accused of having collaborated, rather than just a pure fear of repudiation. I think it's a mix of both. Uh, this is this is wonderful because it sets us up so nicely for the questions we want to ask you about the Spanish-American War and uh, King Leopold. Uh, of Congo after the break. So can we wind the, the clock back uh, a little bit farther to the tail end of the 19th century uh, and talk about another episode that interests us from the perspective of sovereign debt and from the perspective of state succession? So I'm thinking of the Spanish secession or session, I should say, of Cuba to the United States uh, after the Spanish-American War. And one of the reasons that so we find this episode so interesting is because of the U.S. government's position with regard to the Cuban debt that existed uh, uh, at that point, and, and essentially the refusal to take that debt on. And so I'm hoping you can give us some of that background and also sort of help us link it to the doctrine of odious debt. So, so I, I'm not the one who worked in this, but my uh, former grad student, Stephanie Collet, actually wrote a, a paper that I like a lot on the uh, Spanish-American War and the, the Cuban debt. And what's interesting there again, I, I mean, she took a, a market perspective, is that these bonds issued under the name of Cuba were trading in several stock on several stock markets in Europe, amongst other in Belgium. And well, okay, there is this war that breaks out, and at some point in the negotiation, the United States refuses to take over part of the debt. And it's important to realize that at first, it's only one bond that they don't want to take over because they view it as odious. And it's interesting because. In a sense, at the time, you, you, you actually knew what the bond's purpose was. So on one of the specific Cuban bonds, it was clearly stated that this bond was issued amongst other to crush the Cuban insurrection. So 
it's very easy to show that actually the bomb was issued, well, to kill the people that were now supposed to repay it. And so what, what Stephanie did, she looked at the, the prices of these bonds on the Brussels uh, stock market, and she compared several Cuban bonds. And what was interesting is that as soon as the US started to declare one of these bonds as OJUS, there was a huge, huge, huge discount on this bond. I mean, nobody wanted to buy this bond anymore. Even though the OJUS debt doctrine, well, I, we don't even know if it exists today, but at the time it was certainly an innovation. And even though they were still negotiating the future of these bonds, eventually the United States refused to take over both of these bonds and Spain actually repaid a little something later on. What I found extremely interesting is that the market actually reacted very strongly to this threat. So this was immediately viewed as credible. So the United States doesn't want to retake this bond. They have a reason that the claim is legitimate. And, 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 and I found this extremely interesting as a first, uh, first example of this odious debt doctrine that would come later on. So Kim, let me let me try to follow up on this. It, so if I look at the range of papers that you've written, and you've written a lot more papers than I have in my head, but you have a number of examples where, even though there might not have been a clear legal doctrine, these sort of stinky debts, uh, debts that people think are lack morality or have uh, the taint of a bad regime uh, trade at discount. So the, the, the Belgian debt uh, during the Nazi occupation, the Vichy France debt, debt out of um, the Spanish debt to put down uh, the Cuban um, independence uh, movement. So there are all these examples, but and that, then, of course, how can I forget the, the 1906 czarist debt that Maxim Gorky uh, condemned? But then you also have examples such as the ones that you talk about in your work on uh, King Leopold uh, and Congo, where despite the fact that there was this global human rights movement, maybe the first human rights movement that the world has seen that condemns the evils of Leopold in Congo, the bonds that are issued to back Leopold's misadventures don't seem to trade at the discount. I'm, I'm curious as to whether or not over the course of all of the research that you've done, you've developed a sense of when you, when you find these sort of morality discounts or ethics discounts, and when you don't, it, it, I mean, because you, you of course pay so much more attention to context than most people. It's, it's hard to say. I think my view is that Belgium is exceptional in this respect. And, and there are several reasons for that. So the first thing is, I mean, what Leopold did in the Congo is, is completely crazy on many dimensions. It's crazy that one man decides to create his own little empire there it's crazy that people actually support him doing that. And it's even more crazy what he actually did to people there that's awful. So it's a very bizarre setting. I, I've tried to understand why, why this bond didn't trade at a discount in Belgium, why, why Belgians didn't want to, to, know, to, to, to refuse buying these bonds, because opposition in Belgium was there. So if you look at the, the left 
the Belgian left, they, they write this, these very, very strong pieces. They, they intervene in parliament, Van de Velde. I mean, a lot, a lot of these people, I mean, they, they, they're really, really are very well informed. They denounce everything. It's Georges Laurent. I mean, all these people are really, I mean, telling what's going on in the Congo. And it would be absurd to say that after 1903, nobody knows. Everybody knows. I mean, these people are, are there. They describe the arch that the king has done in, uh, in, in Brussels to celebrate the, 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 the 50th anniversary as the arch of the cut hands. So people know in Brussels. Despite that, there is no movement in bonds. I mean, if you look at the bond prices, you could think at some point people realize it's no just regime, the regime of Leopold II. When it's obvious that it's an obvious regime, you should see something, you see nothing. So there are several potential explanations. The one thing could be, well, someone's actually supporting the bonds. You could imagine that someone is actually buying back the bonds to make sure that the price don't go down. I don't think it's the case. I, I have no evidence on that, and I don't think the king had enough money to do it on a large scale. So what is left? Well, it means that people that were investing in these bonds didn't feel it was a bad idea to, to mistreat people in the colonies. And so it, it, it's really something about who were the investors. And that's a major question you have in, in, in all financial history paper. It's usually a question for which we have no answer. It's extremely hard to know who was holding these bonds. My view for Belgium is that a large part of the bonds were held by people who were supporting the king. To understand the political context at the time, the Catholic are running the government for 30 years and they're really, really close to the king. So they're, they're going to support the king and they're probably also supporting him in his Congo adventures. So my my suspicion is that you had a large, I mean, large concentration of financial interest amongst a few people who actually didn't want to sell these bonds, whatever happened in the Congo. That's the only reason I can come up with to understand why uh, Belgium did not denounce this. An alternative could be that that would put the Belgian at a high human standard, that they felt responsible for this, that they should therefore repay the, I mean, but, but even that, I mean, I, I, I don't see why the bond prices did not react in, in Belgium more, more, more sharply. And even when it becomes a colony, the bond prices hardly change. And so that's very, very bizarre. I mean, when, 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 when Belgium is, is known to be taken over the Congo from Leopold, what happens is that the price of Belgian bonds go down and the price of the Congo bonds go up. So it means that people in Belgium viewed it as a bad deal, but that's basically it. And so it's, it's, very, it's very strange. And, and um, yeah, it, it remains a puzzle to me on why we don't see anything in Belgium. I mean, this is, it's sort of a broader puzzle that I wanted to get your reaction to on whether what we're seeing here is sort of markets being rational or markets being irrational. I mean, one of the things that I take away from, from some of your research is that the, as you have found the role of the press in sort of emphasizing the odiousness of some debts plays a, a role in influencing prices. And, and of course we know that, you know, the press is sometimes bought and sold by, you know, by the czarist government as we were talking about earlier. I mean, so 
what is your sense about the way markets are reacting here? Is it, is it um, more often the case that these price differentials reflect sort of decent information about the probability of repudiation versus repayment, or are we seeing just kind of fundamentally irrational swings? So I, it's an extremely interesting question in the sense because if you look at the stories I'm, I'm, uh, I'm telling you, the Vichy bonds trade at a discount, but eventually were treated as the others. The Cuban debt, well, the, the, odious, the most odious of the debt traded at a large discount, but eventually was treated as the other. And the 1906 loan, that's a bit more complex because they were all repudiated, true, but in the 1930s, when there are discussions about uh, reimbursing something, so when the Soviets come back to the negotiation table, the first condition they set is that they don't discuss the 1906 loan. But eventually, well, they don't repay anything anyway. So in a sense, you could say it's an overreaction. People expect something to happen. They're fearing something, but eventually nothing happens. In this case, the Belgian holders of Leopold bonds would have been completely rational because nothing happened to these bonds. Eventually, they were repaid. And so you could say it was ex extremely rational not to, not to fear that anything bad would happen. And maybe they were more reassured also. I mean, the difference between the Tsarist debt, the Cuban debt, and um, to some extent was that you were talking about foreign debt trading in a foreign country. And here, technically, Leopold's bonds were foreign bonds traded in a foreign country, Belgium. But of course, the link between the two countries are so close that, well, you know that the Belgian government was unlikely to hurt its own, I mean, repudiating the, the Leopold bond would have just basically hurt only Belgians, almost. And so that might explain why they did not view it as a credible threat that something would happen to these bonds, even though it ticks all the boxes of OGES bonds. So that might be one of the reasons. You may say it was not that vocal, which is probably true, but you still had some outlets like Le Pup, so the left-wing uh, newspapers, they would, they would denounce the bond. So you would find this thing in Belgium. Kim, I want to ask you about now, about your research that is just beginning uh, on a topic that we are very interested in because we're uh, spending a significant amount of time in our class on it. And this is the topic that we addressed in our prior podcast, which is uh, the Haitian independence debt. And I know you're just beginning uh, looking into this, but does it fit within this uh, category of odious colonial debts that you have looked at all through your uh, career? You know, we find this especially interesting because unlike any of the other examples that we've discussed, here it is at least theoretically possible that there is a contemporary claim by the injured party, the Haitians, against the colonial power France. And so it, it, it is, in a sense, uh, somewhat different than any of the other cases where all of the events are largely over, except perhaps the Russian debts. I guess those, those Russian bonds, people could still be claiming recovery on. So 
I know even though it's unfair, the Haitian debt is something you've only begun looking at. Can you give us your sense of uh, why that's interesting and how it fits within uh, your oeuvre? Okay, I'll, I'll just first about the Russian bonds. Um, they, they, I mean, it's an extremely, also an extremely interesting case of selective defaults because settlements have been reached with the UK, with France, with Germany, but Belgian holders of Russian bonds haven't gotten anything. So it's still a pending case for Belgians. This was just a parenthesis. So anyways, going back to Haiti, I think it's extremely interesting. So, and, and uh, as you said, I just started to look, at, look into it and I think it's in interesting for several reasons. The first one is that people in Haiti actually, well, they're basically forced to accept to pay this indemnity to the French uh, former uh, holder of plantations in, in Haiti. And so in a sense, in ethical terms, well, it's just basically, it, it's, it's, it's uh, extortion. I mean, you put gunboats in Port-au-Prince, you say, well, look, you owe us 150 million francs and uh, just, just sign here. I mean, so that's in terms of ethics, obviously it's, it's completely uh, unfair. It's under duress. What I find extremely interesting in the debates at the time is that you have a position, obviously in Haiti, they feel forced to do it, but you also have a position in France and you have a position of two kinds. You have the first form of opposition that I would call reactionary, where you have the former holders of these plantations in Haiti unwilling to get compensation because what they really want is that France goes back and invade the country again, that they get, they get their property back. So they're against the loan and against indemnity just because you know they want the colony to come back as a colony. And then you have other people who bought these bonds who actually are, and it's hard to know how many they were, but are complaining about the purpose of the bond saying, if I had known this bond was actually meant to pay former people involved in plantations, I wouldn't have subscribed to this bond. It's hard to know how many there are. And what's extremely interesting to me for the moment is the number of pamphlets written in France about this topic. And, and they all start with the truth about. I mean, I don't know how many, how many the truth about did Haiti loan, the truth about what happened in Haiti. They're all about the truth. <laughs> But it's very interesting because what you see there is that it's actually extremely tense politically. And if you think about the French context at the time, it's also a moment, it's exactly the same, it's the same governance, the same time when they pay a huge indemnity to the French aristocrats who had fled during the French Revolution. And the parallel is striking. It's the same story. People have been dispossessed and you should pay them back something. And in, in France, the amount they pay to these aristocrats is, is huge. It's, it's a billion. So the milliard des émigrés, it's a huge amount of money. And so, of course, there's an obvious parallel there. The other thing I find extremely interesting, and, and I'm not a legal scholar, but I, I've started to read the debates at the time, is who's negotiating with whom. And in a sense, the king, Charles X, send the gunboats, tell them, well, you know, here it is. That's the deal you should sign. And then the French parliament, so la chambre des députés, la chambre des pairs, so it's a bit, it's like a parliament and the, the chamber of lords, if you want. Well, they're, they're really wondering why they were not consulted. I mean, they should say something. They should have a say on this. And some argue, look, if it's our colony, what you're actually doing as a king is 
changing the size of our country without consulting anybody because you're now declaring them independent. You as a king are not allowed to do that. And so some of these legal scholars say, well, no, the king is allowed to, to sign treaties without consulting the parliament, which means that they should have first recognized independence because you don't sign a treaty with your own colony or that would be a bit bizarre. And so there are lots of things that are extremely interesting. And I'm, as I said, and, and here I'm happy that you are, you are there so that you are, the, you, are the, you are the legal scholars. You can tell me what's going on there. There's a huge debate at the time about, well, who's signing with whom in which name? And another way to view this is about, I mean, it's really a question of take succession in a sense. I, and it, it raises the question as to whether colonies should pay back debts from the, 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 the mother country. And it's, it's, it's another way to view this. And, and I find it extremely interesting. It's, um, I wish there was no COVID and I could go to the archives. So from now I'm working from home, it's extremely frustrating. I've, I've, I've a lot of archives I've, uh, I've seen. I mean, I know they exist and I want to see. What I've done for the moment is, is collect prices on these bonds. And what you see is that these bonds, they're, they're really never a success. They start, they're floated at 80% of par and very fast after a few months, they're trading at 60% of par and then it goes down and down. And then there's this first Haitian default. So I, I think it's extremely interesting. The other thing, and it's again, the, the complicated story about France is that one of the underwriter Lafitte is also at some point minister of finance and, and he's involved in that. And somehow he gets a deal, a specific deal that uh, Haiti buys back his bonds, even though they're in default. Of course, it creates outrage in the parliament. Why should he be treated better than the others? So there are lots of stories that I, I only start to discover, but that are extremely uh, interesting in a sense. <laughs> this, this, is, this is going to be a, a really fun rabbit hole to go into. And it, it's, I'm astonished at how little mention of the Haitian independence debt there is in the sovereign debt literature. It is largely ignored. But I want to ask you now to get broader and we're almost at the end. So I guess I should allow Mark to ask at least a question at the end, but I'm gonna ask mine anyway, which is your students, I'm guessing must ask you these questions. Although I'm curious as to what economic grad students um, ask you about. But the question that comes up in our classes often, especially with, with Haiti is, how do we get France to repay? And inevitably, there are some students who said, well, this is just, you know, it's so old, it's hundreds of years old, they should have raised it before, why didn't they raise it for 200 years? And other students say, you know, I mean, give us a break, the, this, within the colonial context, these things are very complicated and hard to raise. From your perspective, putting on your hat as an art historian, you must see these questions come up all the time, say with the Elgin marbles or the Kohinoor diamond. How do you talk to your students about recompense for old claims? And I guess it must have come up in the Congo case too. Of course. Well, the first thing I would I would like to say is, I mean, if, if my students were to ask me, I would challenge the fact that it's not been raised before. I mean, in many cases, people have, have, have at least said somewhere, somehow, that they felt it was unjust. So, of course, it may not have been raised in court, 
but it's not as if nobody said anything about the Elgin marbles before last year. And it's been it's been a it's been a topic, a recurring topic, between in terms of international relations. So I'm I'm pretty much sure that once we go in this nice rabbit hole, we'll find evidence that Haiti has been you know, claiming that this was unfair time and again, and then maybe not have bring it to court. The question is to which court could they have brought it? And that's an interesting question. For at least a hundred years, I think would have been extreme. I mean, even nowadays, there's no no international court for, for sovereign default. So I think this is an interesting way to, to, to I mean, interesting way to think about a problem when we say nobody's raised the question. Well, maybe not, not in the legal term, but I, I think in terms of, uh, of claiming it's unjust, it's been done before. So I just for the context, I've worked uh, mostly on World War II and looted art. So that's that's how I've gotten interested in in uh, in what happens to uh, well to, to artworks that were uh, well seized without any uh, any uh, compensation. And it's still a, it's still a huge topic today with uh, all the African artworks that are in, in European museums and that were for part of them taken without any compensation and it's it's a large chunk. In a sense, it's interesting. I I, um, I think there are several ways to think about it. In in nowadays, what you what you have, I mean, so there's a first case is what could we do for the past? And I think while you start to have more and more pressure, more and more provenance research, you have more and more claims. We're not gonna solve it, but it's getting in the right direction in a sense. I think from a legal point of view, you could, you could probably try to think about, well, treaties of, on how you, you wage war and what you can take or cannot take. And, and that might be a starting point to think about the problem because returning everything, it's an unending story. I mean, then you can empty the Louvre and give it first back to, uh, to half of it to Italy, but then you can empty the Prado and give it back to Brussels. So where do we put where do we put the limit? So one way to think about it would be well, once you have treaties about war, what you put your what is I mean, more or less allowed, what you commit to doing when there is war, that could be one starting point. The other way to think is about the future. How do we? I mean, if you were to create a law, what would it look like? And in a sense, you could say what you're what you're doing if you're taking uh, away good from some place where you're depriving the population from the future benefits of these artworks. But it could happen in two ways. You could have an invader that takes the things away and leaves, but you could also have a case where actually it's the government selling these artworks. If you think about Nazi Germany, well, when they have this degenerate art exhibition, what they actually do afterward is sell a large part of these artworks to museums abroad. And so this raises the question as to which extent is a state allowed to sell part of its own artworks? Should we allow this? Should we not allow this? In many cases in Europe, you're not allowed to do the accessioning, but not in other countries. And, and I find it interesting because it's, uh, it's, it's an open question. I mean, technically, when you have this infamous sale of artworks in Lucerne, Switzerland in, in 39, it's a government an elected government, as sad as it is, that is actually selling its artworks from its museum. I mean, it's hard to say they're doing something illegal. But then it made me think about other things where, for example, the state in many countries has a right to buy an artwork, um, I mean, to preempt. So someone is actually, I, I, I win the bid at the auction, but it's a, it's a national treasure. 
the state has the right to step in in Belgium or in France and buy it for that price. And even if I want the bid, I don't get the artwork. And so it made me think maybe we should have some parallel there. If the state is allowed to do this, this means it's a national treasure. They got this artwork because of the fact that it's a national treasure. Maybe in this case, it should not be allowed to be sold afterwards, whatever the regime. But, but I, I think it's a, it's a question where there's still many things to, um, to, to actually to create in terms of, uh, of law. But I'm not a lawyer, I'm just a financial historian. But these are just thoughts I had, so I found it interesting. Well, it, it is interesting, and we've kept you too long, so we should wrap up. But I, I'm, you know, of course, there's your you mention of ways of systematically fashioning rules for handling these situations, and of course, there's also this ad very ad hoc approach, especially. Uh, at least I'm most familiar with it, where there's a lot of litigation these days in in U.S. courts in particular to to recover looted art on an ad hoc basis. So maybe that's uh, uh, that's something that we will steer our students towards as well. But thank you so much for joining us, Kim. It's been really wonderful having you, um, and hopefully we can continue this conversation down the road. We're more than willing to. Thanks for having me.